Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm the founder of Project MedTech, Dwayne Mancini. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of Project MedTech's series, MedTech Money. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is James Biggins from Access Vascular. In this episode, Giovanni and James discuss creating a culture as a startup that people want to be a part of, how he founded Access Vascular, why doing sales was important for his success as a MedTech CEO, the ability to find and fill the gaps as a medtech startup, how he raised money for Access Vascular, his tips for medtech companies for overall success and success in raising capital, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with James Biggins. Jim, thank you very much for being with me today here. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And very glad to have you to tell your story. The reason is also you are one of the many numerous MedTech entrepreneurs and also investors around the world that I've talked with and also helped me discover that there's really no silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here is I wanted to pull your insights and also your anecdotal stories from investors, bankers, entrepreneurs like yourself, so that we can help those who can benefit from this information and also for generations of entrepreneurs to come. And so what I imagine here is we have an audience of experts as well as novices listening in, and I wanted to extract your stories, your insights, your advice for what I imagine is that first time founder or CEO and has no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. And I thought the best place to start learning is from experienced professionals like yourself. And you can tell that story of how you started as well as your successful capital raises um, for the company, I'll spoil it, Access, Access Vascular. So the, the purpose of you and I being here together today is um, public information. You've successfully raised series B for excess vascular. And I wanna understand how that went about, the difference between that round and series A and telling that evolutionary story of building a med tech startup. So these entrepreneurs, as well as investors listening in, can understand what it truly takes to build a med tech startup and some of those trials and tribulations along the way of, of building a company as you succinctly hit those milestones and having to raise those successionary uh, rounds of financing. So before we get into all that, I have three questions that I'd love to ask you to start engaging the audience. First one being, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? Or is there anything else that you'd add or that I'm missing? So uh, Giovanni, or should I call you Mr. MedTech, definitely appreciate <laughs> uh, being on your podcast today. I've, I've uh, definitely benefited from you know, all of the, the podcasts, uh, you know, you, you've created. So I think you're doing a great service for the, for the industry and, and a much needed uh, activity for, for med tech. So, so thank you for that. Uh, and thank pleasure you. being uh, on the call with you today. Um, so, so, you know, well, I guess, you know, money and people are certainly the lifeblood of, of every company, right? You need to deliver on the value and the vision of the, of the business. And you certainly need, uh, you know, to compensate people in, in order to achieve that. So, you know, maybe even more so than, than just the lifeblood, it's really the circle of life for, for, for businesses. Um, you know, if you ever figure out how to, how to get good people to work for you for free, I'm, I'm all ears, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, for for MedTech uh, specifically, you know, maybe breaking it down to, to the money side and the people side, I'll start with the money side first. Um, you know, as you're probably well aware, there's a tremendous amount of buzz about unicorns and these mega rounds that dominate headlines. And it's primarily in tech, uh, I think the thought process there is using these tremendous amounts of, of, of capital uh, is really a way to hack uh, 
you know, growth curves, uh, which I think, you know, people are starting to prove can work in a lot of industries. Uh, it, it happens much less in med tech, but I think you see pockets of it with uh, robotics companies and certainly structural heart companies. Uh, however, I think, you know, universally using that approach for med tech is, is there's lots of uh, issues with that, right? And, and I think it really starts with the additional hurdles that are put on a, a device company specifically in, in, in most of med tech, right, right? Which is the regulatory cycle and the sales cycle, which you can't, you know, you can't throw money at and make a lot of those things go faster. People want it to go faster, but, you know, th there's definitely a limit on, on how you can accelerate those things. Um, and so I think in that way, medtech is really much more traditional when it comes to the investment approach. If you if you change the question up and you said, hey, you know, choose choose one, uh, more money or better people, I think maybe that's also a rhetorical question. But uh, in reality, uh, give me better people and I'll use less money. Uh, you know, that's really my philosophy, and I think that's a win for everyone, right? Every dollar that comes in is is critical in the in the life of a, of a of a company. It's specifically important, um, or, or critically important, I should say, uh, in the early days of a business, where, uh, as you very well know, it's it's hard to get, uh, you know, dollars in the seed round, pre-seed round, uh, and and sometimes even in the A round for a business that doesn't have an approved product, right? So every dollar that comes in, frankly, every hire that you make, is really make or break, and and so, uh, you know, that that becomes uh, very important. Um, you know what I've noticed, sort of, and you sort of mentioned this in the in the uh, in your intro. Being able to change right and grow with the business is really uh, a challenge, and and I think that also goes for the way you think about capital. So as we become more commercial, uh, additional capital can help you hack that growth curve, right? As if you have a commercial product, you can hire more people and, and you can move a little faster. So uh, from from the, the commercial side. Um, you have to modulate your thinking, uh, you know, as you move into that new, that new, you know, uh, you know phase of the company. And so I, I think that's where sort of those bigger rounds of, of money can help uh, a medical device or med tech company. Um, really, you know, switching over to the people side, right? And, and uh, you know, you, you didn't pay me to say this, the audience should know that, but, you know, really that's where it it's really boils down to the people. And it's always been a challenge finding the right talent and, and certainly retaining them. Uh, and, and we talk about this, you know, quite a bit at Access Vascular, um, at, at least at least weekly. That's for sure. How do we find talent? How do we retain them? How do we create a culture that uh, people want to be a part of? Uh, you know, and, and and a lot of these conversations, internal conversations, have have been heating up over the last couple of months because uh, of the sort of strange job market that we're we're in right now. Uh, how do we be competitive against larger companies? And I think the conclusion that I've come to anyways is at the end of the day, we're going to compete the same way we've, we've always competed, uh, which is, you know, what's our unfair advantage in, 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 in any way you know, possible? How do we compete with these guys? And, and we do have unfair advantages, right? We're, we're not looking for the same person, uh, same talent that's interested in working at a large company at this point, right? We, we want people that want to be a part of something special, be involved in something uh, that that you know the entire culture is geared towards solving a problem and moving in the right direction. Somebody that's interested in in sort of leveling up, right? Giving an opportunity to to maybe um, you know get in, get into an area or have experiences that they normally wouldn't at a larger company. Uh, so those are really how we're going to continue to compete uh, in, in this market and get the people that that can drive us towards success. Um, you know, separately as a, as a mantra here at Access Vascular, we're constantly looking forward. We're not just looking for the people that we need today. We're looking for people that we need in 12 months and, and even two years. Um, so I'm always encouraging our, our talent, uh, our, our people uh, to get out there and, and network. And in and, and having those conversations, uh, you know, we look at who we have, uh, you know, our, our highest performers. And it's funny, you know, some of them I've, I've actually interacted with for months, if not years, before even having a job opening. And, and they always seem to be the ones that uh, are, are, the, are the highest performers and, and add the most value. So, you know, we're, we're going to do more of that, um, you know, on the people side. Um, so, yeah, that's, 
hopefully that's helpful, but um, you know, that's the way I see that, see that question. Yeah, so if, if that's not one of the most, it's or, or the most thorough answers for that particular question. So I hope the audience got something out of that. I know that I did. And actually that the way you think about onboarding or hiring is, is not recruiting, it's, it's pure talent acquisition, which is a difference, right? So recruiting is really filling positions right there in front of you where the puck is. <coughs> And talent acquisition is taking that much more long approach of looking where the puck will be and building that network, like you said. So thank you for that insight. Yeah, we, yeah I mean, we've, we've made that mistake, right? And the nuance is an important one. Um, if, you're, if, if we're, you know, sort of scammering to, to fill a position, we, we know we've done something wrong at this point, right? And that, that wasn't always my opinion, but it is now. Right. Which leads me to my next one. So you as an entrepreneur, as the CEO of Access Vascular, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or what would you do differently along the way? Uh, sure. So are you saying, is the question, would I do Access Vascular again? I mean, the answer is yes, but uh, you know, maybe minus a pandemic, but uh, absolutely. I think the ability to innovate within uh, within a, a such a large market and, and bring sort of a, a, a technology that can extend improve life, um, you know, I'd, I'd love to do that again, and, and certainly would do it with Access Vascular again. Um, you know, would I do it differently? I mean, yeah, I mean that's you know, there's, there's a huge learning curve there. You're always going to make you know mistakes or missteps. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would do a bunch of things differently, but I would not change the experience, right? The experience I've gotten from uh, taking the taking it this from concept through a, a commercial endeavor has been just a, a, a fascinating journey and, and, a, and a one that I will sort of always look fondly back on. So I wouldn't change that for the world. And so it may be a short or long answer, but what does the name of your company mean, Access Vascular? I would love to sit here and tell you I, I had this sort of you know great idea for the company, but uh, you know people people are always uh, prodding me on this one for sure. I, I think in the early days, um, you know you don't know what it what something is going to be, right? And so at first, you know I like companies uh, that communicate you know a focus in a in a dedication to what their space is, right? So there's no uh, there's no guessing what we do. Um, maybe a little bit plain, but there's no guessing. And, 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 you know, really, you know, access vascular is all about, uh, you know, access to innovation, access to better outcomes and better patient experiences. And so that's sort of what the name reflects, but uh, short of that, that's, that's what I got for you. Nice. So lo and behold, the man behind the voice, tell us about yourself, Jim Biggins, where are you from? How did you start your career and how did you end up becoming CEO of access vascular? Yeah, so I think um, in in order to understand, you know, how I got here, I think maybe just laying some groundwork. I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. I mean, even before I got into to med tech, before I even knew med tech was a thing, in high school, I was I was always uh, compelled to to start a new business or you know think how I could you know uh, create a new venture. And so the, the laundry list of uh, of things I've tried either. You know, successfully or unsuccessfully is a long one, but you know, I think that's a that's a, a common theme uh, throughout my career is, you know, entrepreneurship. Um, you know, how I got here, you know, I I, I actually started uh, in engineering, so my education is in uh, plastics engineering, my undergrad, anyways, uh, and then I ended up uh, lucky, you know, lucky enough to to work second shift at Medtronic assembling devices to to uh, to pay for college. And it was really that experience um, that's, that, uh, you know, was, was so, in, so helpful and so, um, uh, you know, forming, I guess, just, you know, formative of, of, of my career and, and working with the people at Medtronic and, and gained a, just a tremendous amount of, of, uh, of passion for helping patients uh, through Medtronic and working, uh, working there. And so after graduation, uh, I ended up working for Medtronic in a, in a number of different uh, positions. Uh, so quality manufacturing, R and D. Um, and then also just having, uh, being a part of that culture was also, um, you know, very helpful, uh, you know, throughout my career, uh, Medtronic has a, 
has a great mindset on you know putting the always putting the patient first, and I've and I've always carried that with me. So definitely appreciate uh, my time there. Um, you know, during that time, I was still interested in in entrepreneurship, but wasn't convinced that med tech was for me. I still didn't know enough about raising money or or how to get it done, but I knew I wanted to um, get more experience at a startup. So I ended up taking a job for at Ocular Therapeutics at the time. Now it's a publicly traded company. Um, uh, so it was iTherapeutics and, and now is Ocular Therapeutics. And it was really there that solidified a, a number of things in my mind. Uh, you know, first that uh, doing doing something that uh, improved patient outcomes, improved lives was was something that uh, I, I wanted to dedicate my career to. Uh, and then secondly, that I, I could do a med tech startup, right? It, it was possible knowing, knowing, you know, how to take something from, you know, a napkin sketch all the way to the commercial, uh, you know, commercial device. And, and just having Ocular give me the opportunity to essentially do every aspect uh, of, a, of a commercial medical device company. Uh, preclinical R&D, quality, regulatory, marketing, I mean, you name it. And so that was really, that really solidified my, solidified my passion for, uh, for med tech. Um, you know, during that time, I ended up getting my MBA from Babson uh, and then looked at my career and said, all right, the only thing I don't have is sales, right? And I knew that sales was going to be a huge key in, in being successful. So uh, I, I ended up, you know, resigning from Ocular and, and took a job um, in sales for about three years. And, and, you know, that's just one of those experiences where I don't know if I would be successful without it, right. Getting your door, getting the door slammed in your face a hundred times a day and, and being buoyant enough to, to do it again the next day, uh, was something that was, um, was, was hugely helpful when, when thinking about raising money. So uh, once I felt comfortable that I, I could do it, I, I ended up, uh, preparing myself for a conversation with my wife saying, Hey, I'm, I'm going to quit my job and, and start a company. Uh, I thought it was going to be a, a long negotiation, but I think she knew uh, that I wasn't going to be satisfied unless I was successful. So, you know, she, she gave me the green light um, and, uh, you know, quit my job and, and shadowed clinicians around Boston for about 18 months, uh, just looking for sort of taking the mentality of, um, you know, the, the biodesign program and, and looking for unmet opportunities throughout healthcare, right? Everything from administrators, you know, talking to administrators, you know, going to the ER, uh, and it was really that uh, that opportunity that I ident identified the concept that's now Access Vascular. So, uh, you know, having a supportive, you, you should probably do a a podcast on the, the supporting spouses of uh, entrepreneurs because, <laughs> in reality, they're the they're the unsung heroes. That's for sure. I would actually have to agree with that. And just to close off on that remark, um, I was in London, this is years ago, and I was with a, a CEO um, from Israel, actually, and a very close friend and mentor of mine. And I just knew he was always flying around and busy 100% of the time. And, and I said, you know, how do you do this? And how, how do you have raise a family and the whole thing? And, um, and he goes, there's only one way I can do this. And it's with a supportive spouse. <laughs> That's the only way. So to your point, I should probably do a podcast on that one because I'm sure there's a lot of unsung heroes out there for all these CEOs and investors out there working 25 out of the 24 hours a day. So, um, but I, I got a lot out of that and I'm not going to forget my, my next leading question, which is obviously about your company, but I, I want to dig into a few things here. Um, that after that sales experience that led you to be how did you get from taking on the R&D background to the sales experience and then you got your way to being a CEO or how did that flush out if we can finish that story? Yeah, so, so I think um, I, I, just, I just wanted to you know, have that experience as sales, right? I thought that was an important skill to, to, to raise money and, and interact with people. And you know, having that engineering background, people want to pigeonhole you. So finding that opportunity was, it was extremely challenging, but uh, I knew I could do it, and and I knew I wanted that experience. So, you know, that's what drove me to the sales portion. And then, you know, moving towards CEO, um, you know, I didn't want to bore people with the with the minutia here, but, um, you know, we ended up I ended up uh, identifying about five different opportunities uh, that came from my experience, or, or narrowing it down. Right, there was hundreds that I identified uh, unmet needs as I shadowed clinicians, 
but really narrowed it down to a five and then ultimately one, which was access vascular, uh, you know, worked with uh, a number of, uh, you know, engineers to figure out how to make the material, you know, based on my experience, based on others' experiences, uh, developed a prototype and then, you know, went to, to pitch it to uh, early investors, uh, used the, the first sort of seed round, friends and family, um, and leveraged that to uh, build value, right? Going back to the comment about money, I forget how big the first check was, but it was you know a few hundred thousand. And and the the question becomes, okay, how do you how do you take the next step, right? How do you build value in a medical device, uh, you know, environment with a few hundred thousand dollars? And and we end up uh, focusing on IP uh, regulatory uh, sort of pre sub. Uh, and then preclinical results. So that package I leveraged to get the next round of funding and, and ultimately, uh, you know, start the company. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was the sort of the rounding out the rest of the story there. Were you the founder of Access Vascular or were you the first hired CEO? No, I'm, I'm uh, founder, uh, founder and CEO of the company. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Okay. So that, that R and D background leading to sales was really that perfect round out to allow you to use that engineering brain to figure something out, to then start something true entrepreneurship. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, when you had that R and D background, you have these and, and you found the sales experience yourself, you identified that. So I have a few questions here, but when we have these CEOs who come from pure commercial backgrounds, and they either take over as, as a first-time CEO that's still in an R&D phase or um, even just take over a commercial phase company. What do you think the edge of an actual R&D background, like having an engineering degree, having a career built in R&D upfront, um, what do you think the edge that that gives you as a CEO for a med tech company? I think it's a great question, primarily because um, you know throughout when you when you have an engineering or technical background, uh, people want to sort of you know categorize you or put you in a box, right? That you that you're you know you're not the commercial you know side of the business. Um, you know, fortunately for me, I, I I had both sides, right? So so that was um, you know a benefit uh, for me personally. I think in general, if you look at you know founders with a technical background. I frankly don't know how somebody without a technical background could efficiently run a business, right? You could at, at an early stage, right? I'm talking pre-commercial when, when a majority of the expenses and a majority of the activities are, are, are directly related to, to technical progress. And so um, I think there's, you know, most likely huge inefficiencies uh, to say the least uh, when you don't have the, the technical knowledge. I mean, if you had a great partner, like a great CTO that, that could help, you know, with those aspects and keep everything sort of on track, um, you know, I think that could help. But, you know, what I've seen, some of the most successful medical device, med tech entrepreneurs that I know anyways, um, the ones that have seen the most success do have uh, a technical background with the aptitude to, to take on the commercial side, or at least the knowledge to hire the right people to take on the commercial side. Um, so that, that's sort of how I view it. I think there's a huge advantage to having uh, some technical background. And I mean, as a recruiter myself, helping build careers and talking with people on a, on a regular basis and, and shaping careers for that longer term vision, um, it, it seemed very intuitive of you to know that if you wanted to continue growing your career to be that long term successful entrepreneur, you needed that sales background. Because like you said, people typically put R&D and engineers into a box. And for all those listening out there, it's a total stereotype, but sometimes engineers can be somewhat introverted. When you find that extroverted engineer and coupled with sales experience, it's lethal, right? And, and you're the, the, the proof of that, being an entrepreneur and a CEO, successfully raising a company and building it to a commercial stage. So my, my question for you is, how did you identify that you, you needed that sales experience? Was it just like this innate thought in your head or did you have a mentor that helped you out or what was that thought process of okay i'm an engineer yes i have an entrepreneurial spirit but i am missing a piece of the puzzle if i want to get to where i really want to go how did that happen yeah i think uh you know some of it i, I have the uh the advantage of hindsight right it, it sounds like a well thought out plan but um maybe it was less intentional than i'm than i'm leading on you know to me i always viewed myself as more of a of a business person than an engineer Right. 
you know, you have your sort of classical engineers that, you know, they're driven by the technical aspect. And, and, and frankly, the technical aspect fascinates me. Um, you know, I, I have some aptitude there, but I've always felt like a, I'm more on the commercial, more on the, on the business side of things and just happen to be, uh, you know, have an undergraduate degree in engineering. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know, that's the way that I'm viewing it is, is, um, I've always thought of myself on the commercial side. So, you know, gravitating towards the business side, um, was something I was, I was going to do anyways. Um, and I tried to do that a few times during my career, but again, making that transition is very, very difficult from, from engineering to sales. Um, you, again, you know, just being put in that box is, is hard for people to make that transition. And, and I just, you know, was going to gravitate there anyway. So just found a way to, to get into it. We'll eventually demystify the, the raising capital piece on this podcast, but I, I love asking <laughs> this question. Um, yeah. Because watching you have your career build from R&D, knowing that you needed the sales piece, taking that on, and then identifying a raw idea and starting a company um, is, is a lot of people's dreams out there. It sounds super sexy, but you know, no one really hears the, the war stories or at least high volume war stories that come along with that, that journey. So demystify this for me. You're a med tech CEO. And when people hear the word typically CEO, they think, oh, how glamorous, how amazing, um, head honcho, top of the food chain, point fingers, do this, do that. Demystify this for me. How glamorous is it actually to be a med tech CEO? What's it really like being at the top of the pyramid? Um, I would say it's not glamorous at all, <laughs> right? It's, <laughs> it, it's, ext it's extremely lonely. Um, and it, it's not very, not very glamorous, right? You, you, you know, on a daily basis, you're, you know, addressing, you know, major, major, you know, aspects of the business, right? You're, you're constantly thinking about the business and, and, um, and, and that, and that weighs heavy. And, and so I would say in retrospect, I only do this because I have to do it, right? I, I can't envision myself doing anything else. Um, so if you don't have that level of dedication or passion, then I would highly encourage you to, to make a living, uh, another way. There's, there's lots of ways to make a living. Um, and, and unless you are, you know, fully ingrained and dedicated to, towards, uh, you know, the passion, um, of, of starting a business and, and leading towards commercialization, then, then, uh, I, I strongly suggest you, you rethink it. So hopefully that. Maybe that's too strong, but I, I you know, I, I, there's a lot that uh, there's a lot that has to drive you towards uh, wanting to be a CEO. But but yeah, I mean, I mean, I do get that. Oh, you're a CEO. It's like I always want to correct them and say, well, it's it's not that great. <laughs> but I I love it. I wouldn't do anything else. But um, I think it's it's something that people need to think more about before just saying, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. So then, give this piece of advice because you brought up an interesting point about for those who want to get involved in being a CEO of a med tech company and think about that commercialization piece. Um, there's a lot of people who have this startup glamour idea and, and I'll use your words, like you mentioned before, the unicorn aspect, um, the sexiness of building a startup and getting bought for millions or billions of dollars. But you mentioned the commercialization piece and hanging out until you finally get there. Um, what about all those startup CEOs who are like, listen, I want to build an idea. I want to get it to prototype or final commercialization or a clinical stage or whatever it may be. And then I want to sell it off immediately. What would you give in terms of advice of, Hey, listen, if you're going to build a business in med tech and you're going to see it through, through the technical phases and then be prepared to run a commercial company or hand over the reins to somebody else, not necessarily, let me just build my idea and go sell it for $400 million. Yeah. I think that's a classic mistake, right? That's, that's the, um, that's the attraction is that this, this uh, mystique around, you know, you're going to spend two years developing something and then you're going to sell it for, for a ton of money. Uh, I think if you look at successful exits, uh, especially now in med tech, you're talking 10 years, right? Like if, if you're going to have a successful exit, you're probably doing it for, you know, seven to 10 years. And so, you know, depending on if it's a PMA or, or you know, what your pathway is, um, I think you have to assume you're going to get to commercialization. So, so just be prepared for that. So then lo and behold, we'll, we'll jump into the actual company that you founded and have built and then get into the capital raising side. What is access vascular? 
Tell us about the company. Tell us about the idea. What does it do? Who's involved? All the successes. Where are you today? I, I should write all those questions down, man. That's a that's a lot to uh, to unpack there. Um, you know, Access Vascular. We are a commercial stage medical device company, and we're 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 hyper focused on transforming the efficacy of vascular access through our innovative uh, material platform. And so, you know, maybe to give a little bit of context here before I dive in. Um, you know, the vascular access market is, is sort of, you know, just self-descriptive. It's anytime you, you need uh, access to a patient's vasculature, um, which are, you know, which are, you know, there's eight or nine different types of devices in this space. It's like a five or $6 billion global market, right? So, uh, so lots of opportunity. Um, you know, the lines are primarily placed by nurses and clinicians uh, into patients that need access for you know, any number of reasons, but most commonly they're requiring, these patients are requiring uh, some sort of infusate therapy, could be antibiotics, chemotherapy, uh, total nutrition, dialysis, just to sort of name a few. Uh, and for me, the exciting part is that it touches so many patients, right? So uh, something like 90% of all patients that are admitted to some sort of facility end up with one of these devices, right? So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty ubiquitous throughout healthcare. Uh, and, and as you can imagine, right, the major challenge is how do you keep these lines functioning? Um, if you can, if you think about it uh, from a biological perspective, the lines are, are basically going through your skin into the vasculature, right? So you're, you have an open wound. And then on top of that, you have a foreign body that's inserted uh, into the vasculature. And so that just uh, leads to all kinds of infections, um, phlebitis, occlusions, uh, you know, you name it, there's all kinds of clinical challenges. And for the most part, you know, clinic, clinicians over the years have acknowledged these problems, but they're sort of forced to accept it um, because, you know, what you're solving is, is sort of life-threatening conditions of very sick patients, right? Chemo patients, uh, infected patients, and sort of the acceptance is what I noticed when I was shadowing clinicians is, um, you know, hey, I, I'm really frustrated with this line. It's caused a DVT or pulmonary embolism. Um, and, and that's sort of just accepted. And so, you know, when I looked at it, the biggest problem are the materials for these lines. Nobody has innovated, you know, these, these polyurethane materials for, you know, for a very, very long time. They, companies have certainly addressed the problem with coatings or tried to address the problem with coatings or additives, but ultimately there's this foreign body response that leads to the cascade of, of complications. And so, First and foremost, it's terrible for the patient, right? If you know have friends or family that are experiencing you know chemotherapy, and then you know to, on top of this top of this horrible treatment, right? You 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 get a uh, an occluded pick line which delays your your therapy. Um, you know that's that's just something that they shouldn't have to deal with, right? Uh, we've seen a number of patients who go in for a knee replacement, and then they get an infection which requires a pick. And then that gets uh, thrombosed, so they stop their therapy. They end up in the hospital for way longer than they need to be, and and there's an additional risk there. And so, um, you know, we wanted to to address that problem. And that, and I think that you know the, the second part of that, which you know is an important aspect, I think, to any med tech company, is not just addressing the clinical concern, but you have to address the the whole healthcare system. Right, you can't go into a hospital and sell a product without talking about, you know, improving outcomes, um, certainly, but also reducing the total medical expense. And that's that's really the crux of what we offer the market is being able to um, significantly impact total medical expense through better outcomes, reducing these complications because our material is less recognized by the body. And so that's really what our um, you know company company is all about. We have two uh, products that are in the market today and we're building a commercial team hiring a bunch of, of, of sales reps across the country and and beginning to get into some marquee names and, and build uh, you know build our customer base um, and, and you know the, the solution really and, and the mission of the company if you will is solely focused on addressing the challenges uh, that are that are uh, certainly uh, well known within the vascular access space and reducing the clinical and financial uh, burdens uh, that are a result of these poor performing devices. Uh, and, it, and it boils down to, you know, the fundamental different, uh, difference of our technology is that it, it better mimics the body chemistry 
uh, and therefore is less recognized by the body. So, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the, the vision is to you know, dominate the, the vascular access space with a superior product that really transforms the efficacy of these procedures, right? The occlusion rates, you know, from traditional devices are like 25%, very high pulmonary embolism uh, related to DVTs that are caused by the presence of a foreign body. And our clinical results are starting to, to show that uh, we significantly impact uh, the complication rates. And, and that's really what it's all about, right? Uh, the, the six years uh, spent developing the technology, raising money, um, it's, it boils down to, you know, improving outcomes and, and helping patients, which is really the exciting part for me. Now that we're in commercialization, um, I can't wait to continue getting this product in, into patients that, that desperately need a better solution. So thank you for the introduction of the company, and we're gonna—I'm still gonna push it off on the, the capital raising piece. But I want to—I want to ask one more question on you being that CEO, and personally for you, the leverage that the edge as a as an individual that you've had. I mean, you often hear of the CEOs who are these founders; they have these great ideas. They've never raised money before. Um, they're the typical founder, founder, right? Maybe lacking of business acumen. And along the way, the investors or even the founder themselves has this epiphany that in order to get through commercialization or expand or blow it out, um, there should be someone else who's been there and done that before who comes in and takes over. What has been your secret sauce for being this awesome founder, R&D sales experienced individual who's been successfully able to navigate these uncharted waters as this first time founder, develop a technology, raise capital, get it through clinicals, or at least get it through the technical phases and then commercialize it. Like what's your secret sauce for being that anomaly CEO or one of the many few, um, many few, one of the few um, who have taken it from A to Z in theory? Yeah, I think, um, you know, thank you for the, for the compliments. I, I appreciate that. But, um, you know, in all reality, I think it's just uh, awareness, right? What, what, are the, what are the pieces that we need to be successful, right? And, and you know, leading the company, um, you, you know, it, you have to lead the entire organization, not just one aspect. So if there's an area that I think, um, you know, we need more expertise in, then we go find the person that has that level of expertise, right? I don't think any CEO, um, if they're being honest, is a master at every single area of the business. Um, but it's it's my job to ensure that we have the right people in the right seats at the right time in order to be successful, right? And so that's why we went out and hired a VP of marketing. Um, that's why we went out and hired a VP of sales. All people that um, are contributing immensely to this organization, right? I, I can't, I could never do it all my on my own, anyways. Um, so it's just, a, it's it's like a chess game, right? You got you got to get the right pieces in order to be successful. And, and so I don't really care what the background of the CEO is, as long as they can identify what those pieces are, you know, recruit and retain that talent and execute. And so, you know, to me, that's what it boils down to. I, I think, I think it's a little bit of a misnomer to to say, oh, you know, we need a commercial person to come in and, and, and run it. That, that may be true, but I think it's, it's making sure that you have the right talent um, for any aspect of the business, you know, quality, regulatory, you, you know, you name it, and being able to lead those people, which is really, I think, you know, what my job is, is, is to you know, find those people and, and lead them uh, and be successful in that way. Um, and, and, and again, I think it's less about the background and more about the ability to uh, identify the, the holes and, and fill the gaps. So we've talked a lot about you, your career, you as a CEO, Access Vascular and what it is, the, the, the moment that we've all been waiting for on this raising capital demystification. Um, as a founder, and like you mentioned, coming from an R&D background and having sales, when you had founded Access Vascular and there was this click moment, right? I mean, there was this one day or moment in, in that day where you're like, okay, I have an idea. Now I have to go fund it. And without having had that experience previously, how did you even start? How did you know 
where to go from that moment in time where you're like, because I, I mean, I could take a, a pen and draw my idea on a napkin and say, okay, I have this idea, but then I got to go out and fund it. And if I have no idea what that even looks and feels like for all those entrepreneurs who have these ideas, who are listening now, who have never raised capital before, speak to them. What is it like to raise money for the first time? So, so what, again, I, I love the questions there. They're, they're uh, numerous when you uh, when you throw it out there. So um, let me just sort of uh, throw out what I'm thinking as, as you're asking this question. Um, you know, demystifying it. I think that's a that's an interesting um, sort of descriptor, right? Because I can't tell you how many times I talk to somebody that's passionate about starting a business, and they and they the first question inevitably uh, is where did you find the investors? Where did like and and the I think everyone, I think everyone's searching for this like magical answer. It's like, I went to this website and uh, there's a list of them and the phone numbers and you just call them up. It, it doesn't happen like that. Uh, you know, maybe that's obvious to some people, but I think that needs to be said over and over again is there is no demystifying it. It is a, and, and the other part of that is it's a sales process. And that's where my sales experience really was helpful, right? I think, um, you know, when I said, okay, I need to go raise money you know, what's your pipeline look like, right? How many leads do you have in terms of, you know, where that money is? And, um, and you just cram the pipeline with as many, you know, initially wealthy individuals uh, that you can find and, and that will listen to you. And then you take them through the pipeline and, and try to close and, and try to pitch them on why this is a great investment opportunity, right? It, and to me, you know, the advice I'd give uh, anyone that has never raised money before and never been in sales is, you know, go do door-to-door -door sales or telephone sales for six months. <laughs> and, and, and if you can survive that and you can figure out how to make that work, then, then you'd be ready to, to go raise money. But I think it, it is that experience exactly that, that, that uh, gave me sort of a little bit of structure. I don't think enough people look at it as structure, but you know, I have an Excel spreadsheet with thousands of names on it and uh, I updated it, you know, religiously and, and uh, you know, and that's how it happened, right? Some people will, some people won't. Uh, so what? Move on, right? I think that's like the mantra that you have to have. A lot of people are going to say no. And I love that you brought up the Excel spreadsheet because out of the numerous entrepreneurs that I've talked to, it, it comes back to this Excel spreadsheet. And, you know, the, there's these people who want to create algorithms or like you mentioned, go to websites or paid for services or once again, finding these aha moments to find these investors who are going to invest in them. But realistically, going back to what it's like to being a CEO, there, there's nothing glamorous about even raising capital, right? I mean, it's it's sitting in front of a computer and spending hours in front of a computer, you know, looking up stuff or networking or making phone calls. And like you said, from grit and grind of manually updating an Excel spreadsheet, there's nothing sophisticated about it. And, and that's what I really want to drive home to all those listeners out there, because Jim's story right now is really what it's like. And it's been done numerous, numerous times of just CEOs who don't think it's glamorous to be CEO, but still very awesome position to be in, especially as you hit these milestones and very rewarding, but to sit there and just grind and do this very manual labor position where there's, there's nothing glamorous about it. It's just numbers. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that's spot on. And I think, um, you know, a couple of things maybe to, you know, to, to hit on as well as, uh, you know, going back to the, the first topic, which is, you, you know, all the glamorous headlines about, you know, these big mega rounds and uh, unicorn status. Um, yeah, those are out there, right? And those are the ones you hear about, but there's lots of people out there grinding every day, uh, especially in med tech to get those first dollars in, right? And, um, you know, maybe, maybe a few things that helped along the way, certainly a few things that helped along the way is, you know, find people that believe in what you're doing and want to, and want to help you because they believe in you. Um, and, and once you get those people, right, the people that have the connections, uh, the people that are, you know, run in the circles that can write the checks. Um, once you get those people on board, uh, you know, things become a little bit easier. Uh, no one's going to do your job for you, but it's certainly going to be, uh, you know, easier for you. And so I want to dig in and spell out 
so you've raised Series B, which was announced formally of March of this year, 2021. Yep. Um, the history of fundraising, just so all those listeners understand where Access Vascular has been and what you've had to go through. So did you have the classic family and friends round, then the classic seed round, then the Series A and then the Series B? Was it that clean? No, it, it actually wasn't. Um, I, I was focused on uh, family offices, high net worth individuals um, up until the Series B. Right. I, I was fortunate enough to get connected with enough high net worth individuals that believed in the business that would invest in every single round um, that we, we sort of, uh, you know, put it together. Right. So there was a number of rounds um, that led up to the Series A uh, and then and then B. But, you know, th that's another thing. Right. Everyone wants to label what the round is. And, I, you know, it's it's difficult to do and, and probably inaccurate. Uh, but yeah, we, we had several rounds. It was very, I would say it's traditional in the sense that I think most people go through what we went through or, or, or structure the rounds in the way that we did. Um, but it's not sort of, you know, how it's written in books, that's for sure. So high net worth individuals, family offices, and eventually traditional venture capital made its way into Access Vascular. That's traditional right. venture capital didn't come in until the Series B, correct? Um, yeah, that's correct. Okay. Um, so we, we had smaller, we had, we actually had smaller VCs, you know, th putting in money, uh, throughout, um, you know, people that had run, you know, larger funds, um, you know, smaller funds, they were sort of putting in, but, but not sort of as formal as the, as the last round. So then once again, for those listening and, and I've done individual podcasts on this previously, whether it's angels, high net worth individuals, or what is it like specifically to target family offices and raise money from family offices, and then venture capitalists. If you could describe your experience, you've dealt now with three different buckets of investors, high net worth individuals or angels, family offices, and, and VCs. How do they approach the investment process differently? Or are they all the same? Like, What, what is it like raising and identifying high net worth individuals versus what is it like to find family offices and, and go through that process? And then also, what is it like to find VCs? Or is it easier to find VCs because they're more public than the family offices or the high net worth individuals? Talk about those differences in those three categories. Yeah, um, I would say for, you, you know, for the first, you know, friends and family round, it, it was really critical that we found people that believed in us, right? So they had you know, maybe some uh, experience investing in, in, in med tech. Um, but, you know, a lot of them had varied backgrounds. And, and what it came down to, especially at that point, they were investing in, in, in me, right? And so uh, that was a very different feel. It was more, you know, them getting, uh, you know, identifying them first, uh, asking them to get access to, you know, to their network, helping us, you know, make connections and, and, and assisting getting additional funds into the company, right? You know, hey, talk to your friends and, and uh, tell them all the great things we're doing and, and get them to invest in, in uh, Access Vascular. And so that was very different. And, and I think, um, you know, one thing that was interesting to me is um, for the first couple of rounds, I actually didn't pitch that much. They were more just conversations. I, I had a pitch deck already. You know, I, I spent some time, you know, preparing, but ultimately it was conversations that led to the investment um, and they were much more interested in sort of understanding who I was and my approach and my experience and, and much less concerned about, you know, the pitch deck, which I found fascinating because, you know, I'd go to do like a more formal pitch and, uh, you know, I see these well, Paul, extremely well-polished CEOs that had, you know, buttoned up, um, pitches. And I was always in awe. I'm like, wow, that, that's, that must've taken you forever to nail that pitch. And I was so a, a little more raw because I, I was having most of my success just talking to individuals. So, so that was sort of the that was the 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 um, uh, individual sort of angel angel, if you will. And that bled into uh, a lot of conversations with family offices, right? So a lot of these individuals are connected to family offices and would make those introductions. Um, and that was a little more formalized, um, a lot more due diligence. Um, but a, a, a similar feel, right? Less, less formal, more. Um, and, and I think it's a, it's actually a realistic approach, right? It's, it's um, you know, digging in and doing a bunch of due diligence on something that's not commercial yet. 
um, in some ways, you, you know, making sure that whoever's running the company could pivot or change or, um, you know, be ahead of, you know, some sort of some sort of pivot um, is probably much more important at that phase. And then, you know, it slowly evolved. You know, once we got clearance uh, on our first device um, with a very small amount of capital, that that got the attention of, of bigger, you know, bigger funders. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, you know, more family offices and, and went through that, uh, you know, that process. Uh, and then, you know, once it came to commercial, um, I knew I wasn't going to be able to, or I probably could have raised all the capital uh, from high net worth individuals and family offices for our series B, um, but really felt like it was going to be uh, a transformational uh, round for us. Um, and, uh, you know, once I met uh, Alex and Luke from TVM, uh, it was like a breath, breath of fresh air, right? Um, they just got what we were doing innately. Right. They had tons of questions and did a tremendous amount of due diligence, but um, it, it was a dramatic shift in the way that the investors were looking at at the business. Um, I didn't have to explain what a, a vascular access was and, and the, the complications that was that was known. Um, and, the, you know, a bunch of other different areas of focus. Um, and so that that was sort of the, the dramatic shift. Uh, you know, g- going from family offices to to someone like, uh, you know, TVM. And I've been fortunate to have Alex on this podcast from TVM. And, and for those who have followed this podcast, Alex did an amazing job of telling the credibility and, and the career that she's built to be able to offer that added value to someone like Jim at Access Vascular. So you, you hit on a really good point. And, and that's my next question is this idea of good versus bad money or good versus bad capital when and it may, it may not even be bad capital but for example oftentimes we hear that investors when they're going to raise money they're looking for something more than simply a check and they want added value and experience and mentorship to a board member whatever it may be so this aha moment of okay yes you could have maybe continued to raise money from high net worth individuals as well as family offices, but that separator that led you to traditional venture capital, is it because Alex and team from TVM knew more about the company, the technology, the market, and they could add additional value that you weren't unaware of beyond just simply giving you a check, like maybe your other investors have? Basically, what I'm saying is, what added value does a VC give you that other styles of investors may not? And is that good versus bad capital? Or what is your definition of that? Yeah, I, I don't want to seem like I'm sucking up to, uh, to TVM, but uh, I will be, uh, I'll be forthcoming on this. When I started talking to Alex, it was, for, for, on my side, it was, it was like a no brainer, right? She just got what we were doing. You know, she's, she's got a, uh, you know, she's, she's trained as a, as a clinician, uh, as a physician, um, you know, she's been uh, on the business development side. And so it, it, that, to be honest, that's really what changed my mind. I, I was actually, you know, raising uh, the round and I was considering, you know, taking money from, from, uh, from family offices. And that was that just the acknowledgement. Um, I just felt that an, an initial connection with her, right? Like this person is going to help drive the value of the business. And I, and I didn't, I don't know, you know, she's given us great insights, her and Luke, the other, our other partner uh, that's involved, um, given us great insights, but it was really just the acknowledgement of, hey, the, these, they, they're experienced, uh, you know, deep knowledge, deep bench of experience, um, you know, well-connected uh, and, and good, you know, I felt like they were going to be good partners, which is, is critical. It's, it's, it's so easy to say, you know, we're only going to take money from, from, you know, good, you know, like you said, good sources of, of capital. Uh, that's much easier said than done. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of bad check writers out there, but uh, I just felt like it was, it seemed like an obvious choice for us at the time, based on the personalities, based on my conversations uh, with them, that this was going to put us into sort of the next level, right? We're going to go from, you know, the scrappy R&D, uh, company to a commercial entity that's backed by 
you know, a major venture capitalist uh, in, in this space. And so that to me uh, just added a tremendous amount of value in, in many aspects of the business, actually. So I want to leave off with this because in all honesty and holistically for this particular podcast with you, you are the ideal profile, right? Of, of this entrepreneur that I want to have stories told for, for all those other entrepreneurs that are in your shoes five years ago, six years ago, who could walk in your shoes and develop that idea and then take that company to where it needs to be, learn how to raise capital, learn how to raise a team or build a team. So I couldn't have asked for a better guest today. And, and I want to say thank you very much. And, and this is the question that I want to leave off on. In summary of everything that we've talked about today, the Jim Biggins, the metaphorical Jim Biggins and that future entrepreneur who has that engineering degree or maybe even coupled with the engineering and sales background who just is salivating to become this entrepreneur and develop their idea and take it somewhere. What are the three to five aha moments in building this business and raising capital that you clearly didn't know when you were having your napkin idea five or six years ago, but now you know it's burned in your brain. You're like, damn, if I only knew that five or six years ago, um, that would have seriously helped me out a bunch. Like, and it, it may be a hard question, but just top three to five. If I could tell the entrepreneurial world this, this is what I would say. Yeah, to narrow it down to, to three to five is, uh, is definitely a, a challenge. Um, you know, I would say, you know, network is huge, right? Just get out there, talk to people, um, you know, learn as much as you can and just immerse yourself in the, in the business, in the culture, um, you know, for sure. Um, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, learn all of the aspects of the business. I, you know, I, I think that's, you know, fairly unique for someone, you know, running a company to, you know, have the experience of actually building product at some point, especially on a, on a second shift um, and just have that, you know, the realities of, of, of that, right. As, as a background. Um, so, you know, don't be afraid to, to, to get, to get into the weeds, um, as you're, you know, working towards starting, uh, starting a company. And I think gearing your, you know, uh, you know, background and experiences, um, towards your ultimate goal, right. It, it doesn't happen overnight, especially, you know, you could, you could be, you know, in college and start a, um, you know, a website or, or something of that nature, right? You don't, you don't necessarily need to have all of the, um, a lot of experience, right? You could, you could go out there and take a shot at it and, and uh, you know, you might end up with the next Google. That, that doesn't tend to happen in, in med tech. And I, I think as you're you know, going through your own process, just make sure you get all of the experiences and understand, you know, all of the aspects of, of the business that it takes to, to go from a napkin sketch to commercialization. And you're, you're never going to get bored in the process, but you, you'll be driving to an ultimate goal. So, um, you know, get those experiences. Um, you, certainly sales experience would, in my, in, from my perspective, would be extremely helpful. And so maybe, maybe the, the lesson there is if you have sales experience, get some R&D experience. Uh, and if you have R&D experience, you know, cross, you know, cross uh, over to the, to the other side and, and get some experience on the commercial side. So, I think just having the broad experiences uh, in general, but uh, certainly sales is, uh, is helpful. Um, uh, what else, uh, you know, find, find good people to work with. Uh, maybe that goes with the, with the first lesson there, but um, you know, when you find good people work with them and, uh, and learn from them, you know, and, and, and maybe the last piece uh, in terms of experience, I would highly recommend finding a startup, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, get yourself involved in a startup and figure out what works and what doesn't, even if it's, even if it's a, uh, you know, unsuccessful, uh, just having that experience and knowing not what, you know, what not to do. I, I think I've learned in talking to people that have been involved in, in other um, businesses and other startups uh, in the mid tech space, just, you know, sort of being a, a student of the space, um, even when the outcomes aren't great, just, talk to those people and figure out what, what they did wrong, what they would do differently, but, but just learn. And then last point on that, because those were good business builder experiences and takeaways specific to raising capital or fundraising. Is there any click moments or ahas that you would want to tell entrepreneurs who have never been there and done that before? 
Um, I saw a meme the other day that sort of completely articulated, uh, you know, being a startup CEO, which is sort of this picture of, of somebody standing on a podium and beneath the podium, there's all these other building blocks leading up to the, to the podium uh, of success, right? And, and underneath are, are all of these other, you know, things that happen along the way that nobody talks about. Um, and so, you know, understanding what it really takes, um, you, you know, to, to be successful uh, in this space is, is uh, you know, understand, understand that there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and, and there's a lot underneath the surface. So it's, it's not just overnight success, right? And I love that phrase. I've, I've seen it quite a bit, uh, you know, on social media, you know, the, the, uh, the 10 year overnight success, right? It, it, it takes a lot. Uh, I don't know if that answered your question, but. Uh, it certainly does. Well, because all those people out there who, who watch the series or the movies, and like you mentioned the word unicorns and all the sexiness of building a business and selling it overnight, just know that it's a lot of Excel spreadsheets. It's a lot of hiring and firing and dealing with all the stuff that no one talks about and all the grit and grind and the sleepless nights. So it's the overnight 10 year success, like you mentioned. So um, Jim Biggins, CEO of Access Vascular, I'd love to say thank you very much for your time, for dedicating your story to this podcast series, for sharing with us. And this is MedTech Money, where we demystify raising and investing capital. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you, Giovanni. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.